Hello, and welcome back to the Security Distillery and to the latest edition of the Intelligence Espresso. In this episode, we shall cover three topics from across the globe. Today, Josefina shall discuss the suspicious circumstances surrounding the death of Alexei Navalny and what this may mean for the opposition to Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia. Then, Dolo shall consider the controversial reforms introduced by the President of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, and his rise in popularity amid accusations of human rights violations. But first, I, Angus, will discuss the ongoing civil war in Myanmar, with a focus on the military regime's recent announcement that they will enforce a conscription of civilians into the armed forces, following significant gains made by rebel militia groups. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and watch out for more content from the Security Distillery on our website and social media channels. On the 10th of February 2024, the military junta in Myanmar announced the introduction of mass conscription to bolster its forces in its ongoing fight against rebel groups across the country. By invoking the 2010 People's Military Service Law, the military regime, also known as the Tatmadaw, has begun a forcible enlistment of 6,000 fighting aged men or women per month in a bid to offset the losses experienced through combat, defection or surrender. This announcement comes just over three years after the Tatmadaw, led by Min Aung Hlaing, overthrew the democratically elected National League for Democracy, or NLD, and imprisoned its leaders, including Aung San Suu Kyi, former state councillor and Nobel laureate. The Tatmadaw has been accused of committing human rights violations against journalists, civilians and political opponents, including arbitrary arrests, torture and mass killings. Their methods are not exclusive to the ongoing civil war and have been seen before in their campaign of genocide against the Rohingya Muslim population in Myanmar's western Rakhine state, which began in 2016. There are currently over 1 million forcibly displaced Rohingya Muslims in refugee camps in Bangladesh as a direct consequence of the Tatmadaw's ethnic cleansing campaign. The main political opposition to the Tatmadaw comes in the form of the National Unity Government, or NUG, the parallel government formed by activists and NLD figures which seeks to build international support for the resistance. The military wing of the NUG is a People's Defence Force, or PDF, and is one of the largest rebel armies across Myanmar. However, the NUG and PDF are not the only resistance organisations. Myanmar comprises 135 ethnic minority groups, many of which are in direct conflict with the central government as a consequence of sustained repression and human rights violations. Of the numerous ethnic armed organisations, or EAOs, which largely operate in Myanmar's border regions, it is the Three Brotherhood Alliance which is making headlines. The Three Brotherhood Alliance is a loose confederation between three of the larger EAOs that operate in Myanmar's borders, the Arakan Army, the Myanmar National Defence Alliance Army and the Ta'ang National Liberation Army. The alliance has gained significant momentum since mounting its counteroffensive, dubbed Operation 1027, in October of 2023. Since Operation 1027 commenced, the Three Brotherhood Alliance has captured the junta's regional strongholds of Lao Kang, situated in the eastern Shan state, and Palet Wa in the Rakhine state. These victories have seen the rebels gain access to large stockpiles of both weaponry and ammunition, and have also severely damaged morale in the Tatmadaw. It is estimated that since Operation 1027 began, with the Tatmadaw's fighting force of approximately 100,000 soldiers, 4,000 have either defected or surrendered, contributing to the estimated 14,000 defections and 10 to 15,000 soldiers killed or badly wounded since the coup began. Ultimately, the Tatmadaw's forces have been spread thin by defection, casualties and geography, facing increasingly frequent attacks from resurgent EAOs across the country. 
This links to why the Tatmadaw regime has announced the conscription of the population that remains in government-controlled territory. However, questions remain regarding how effective the unwillingly conscripted forces will be and whether they will simply add to the numbers of casualties and defections from the military that are already mounting. The international response to this conflict has been muted and weak. In 2022, the UN Security Council urged restraint and a de-escalation of violence, but stopped short of any form of intervention. Western governments have imposed sanctions upon the coup's leaders, but not provided any lethal aid to Myanmar's pro-democracy rebels. China has granted tacit recognition to the junta in what is considered to be a move to protect its belt and road energy and infrastructure investments, but it is becoming increasingly frustrated by the junta's inability to curb human trafficking and cyber fraud operations on the China-Myanmar border. Russia remains one of the strongest supporters of the junta, with Moscow increasing their military sales and economic cooperation with the Tatmadaw regime since the conflict began. Other regional actors, including ASEAN, have done little to condemn the actions of the junta. Therefore, it is likely that the conflict in Myanmar that has raged for over three years will continue. The recent conscription announcement signifies a potentially major turning point in the war, but will these troops contribute to a Tatmadaw victory, or to the growing numbers of defectors to rebel groups such as the PDF or Three Brotherhood Alliance? Moving on to our next topic of the episode, and if you have read the news these last few days, you have probably seen that the Russian oppositionist Alexei Navalny has reportedly died in a Russian prison at the age of just 47. And according to what's being reported about his death, he fell ill on Friday last week, and then he died only a few hours later. So, who was Navalny, and why does this matter? Starting with the first question, Navalny was a Russian lawyer and opposition politician, maybe first and foremost, and he was one of the loudest voices criticizing Putin's regime from within Russia. For many years, he has been organizing protests, revealing corruption at the very highest level in Russian state affairs, and in general, made a lot of noise for the Russian authorities. The Russian authorities on their side viewed him as an extremist seeking to destabilize Russia and accused him of having ties to the CIA. The story of Navalny and Vladimir Putin is a long one, and we can start with Navalny's role in the protests against the allegedly rigged presidential election of 2011, when Putin was re-elected after four years of Medvedev, and this led to Navalny's arrest. And then in the years that followed, a number of other arrests and imprisonments related to his opposition activities, often on questionable legal grounds. In 2018, the European Court of Human Rights held that Navalny had been denied the right to fair trial on six occasions since 2012. Navalny did announce his candidacy for president once for the presidential election of 2018, but was barred from running by Russia's Central Electoral Commission. And then we all remember when Navalny was poisoned with Novichok in August 2020, for which he was later treated in Germany, and he still decided to return to Russia after his poisoning, where he was yet again imprisoned. And the story about this last imprisonment was, at least according to his spokesperson, one about steadily declining health, about 308 days of isolation, starvation, and even organ failure. And there has been speculation about his death on several occasions these past few years, and now it seems to have happened. 
Navalny's death was confirmed by a spokesperson on Saturday, so the day after his passing, but exactly how he died is difficult to state for certain. Some Russian state media say it's, it was the result of a blood clot, and others have been calling it sudden death syndrome, which is not really an illness, but an umbrella term that is often used about sudden deaths without any known cause. His body has now been sent to Moscow for autopsy to give a clearer picture about what happened, although his family is accusing the Russian state for trying to cover up the traces of the actual cause of death by keeping the body away from the public eye. So moving on to the second question, why does this matter? First of all, it matters because Navalny was an important and influential opposition figure. The Russian authorities love to undermine his importance, but... The perception of him as an actual direct threat has been demonstrated through countless efforts to silence him. And the fact of his death has been reported very widely within Russia, underlining the Russian public's interest in him. Secondly, the timing is also worth noting with the upcoming presidential election in Russia on the 17th of March. Without jumping to any conclusions about Navalny's cause of death, his death itself weakens the already minimal chance of opposition visibility coming up to this election. The waves that Navalny once created seem to be almost gone, exemplified by the general lack of critical questions following his death inside Russia besides his family. Western media and politicians describe his death as a dark day for democracy and for anyone who had hopes for a change in Russian politics. The Kremlin, on the other hand, has described the West's reaction as unacceptable and accuses the West of having its conclusions ready about the cause of death. One Russian state media source claims that the West is using Navalny's death as an excuse to get more involved in the war in Ukraine, and others speculate that the West even was involved in his death itself. But regardless of one's opinions about Navalny's actions or the circumstances surrounding his death, his story is undeniably one about courage and speaking up for what you believe is right, despite facing immense personal risks. And that is, at least in my opinion, a quality worthy of respect. Now, on to our final topic of the day and moving on to a different continent. What is going on in El Salvador? Nadim Armando Bukele Ortez has been the president of the small Central American country since 2019. On the 4th of February 2024, the country held general elections, in which Bukele triumphed with an overwhelming majority. However, immediate re-elections are unconstitutional in the country. How did he manage to go over the constitution? And how is it that he became the most popular president in Latin America, despite his extremely controversial policies? El Salvador was known for being one of the most violent and unsafe countries in the world, with alarmingly high murder rates and gangs that operated with impunity. This obviously left the population seeking a leader with a strong hand that would tackle the country's problem from a different angle. Bukele represents the rejection of civilians for traditional politics and a lack of trust in governmental institutions. In 2019, Najib Bukele inherited a country with a homicide rate of 38 per 100,000 inhabitants. But, by the end of 2023, he had reduced it to just 2.4 per 100,000. How did he do this? 20 days after Bukele took power, his government implemented the Plan Control Territorial, 
or territorial control plan. This strategy consists of six phases and a seventh one in case the previous six were unsuccessful. The first phase, preparation. This consisted in the deployment of police and military personnel to locations where gangs collected extortion and rent payments. The aim was to disrupt the gangs' financial operations and to send a message to them. At the same time, 28 prisons in the country were put on lockdown. The second phase, known as opportunity, focused on enhancing healthcare, education, and constructing schools to offer alternate opportunities to Salvadorans. The third phase was called modernization. This phase looked to update security equipment. However, funding for this phase fell through. The fourth phase, called incursion, consisted of security forces entering gang territories. During the time period of this phase, Bukele declared a state of emergency following a highly violent weekend. The declaration is still in act almost two years later. Phase 5, extraction, targeted, surrounded, and removed gang members from communities. For this, Bukele ordered the construction for a new prison with capacity of 40,000 inmates. This was called the Terrorism Confinement Center. The sixth and last phase was called integration and is aimed at mid- and long-term needs. The state of emergency declared in March 2022 during the fourth phase has been heavily rejected by human rights organizations. The National Assembly has suspended basic rights in response to gang violence. According to Human Rights Watch, authorities have committed widespread human rights violations, including mass arbitrary detention, enforced disappearances, ill-treatment in detention, and due process violations. As a result of the controversial policies, El Salvador has now the highest incarceration rate in the entire world and is home to what are now being known as mega-prisons. As of January 2024, there were reportedly 75,000 people in the prisons. Additionally, there have been alleged attempts to the democracy of the country and its institutions. In 2021, Bukele replaced all five members of the Supreme Court's Constitutional Chamber and its Attorney General. By placing people that were politically aligned to him, he ensured he would have no real opposition when doing fundamental challenges to the country. In the same year, the Constitutional Chamber ruled that the Constitution allowed for immediate presidential re-election, when, in fact, the Constitution explicitly says that someone who held the presidency in the previous period for more than six months is not allowed to run for a second term. Despite this, Bukele secured himself another five years as president to continue enacting his war on gangs. The reality is, most Salvadorians affirm they now have a more peaceful life. They no longer suffer extortions and are able to transit areas which were for decades under gang control. According to a study done by the University Francisco Gavidia, eight out of 10 civilians believe the country is safer. Bukele provided for Salvadorans the solution they had long been waiting for. Currently, the country has the lowest murder rate in the past 30 years. As time passes on, the state of emergency proves to be the president's security policy, more than just an extraordinary temporary measure. And the president has yet to declare in what direction his policies will go during the next term, which leads to believe there will be a continuation of his previous ones. The case of El Salvador leaves us wondering, is it ever okay to compromise human rights and democratic values in favor of security? Thank you for listening to today's Intelligence Express. Until the next time.